glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. Hey, I know, I know anytime, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Anytime we celebrate something, there's always the other side, right? You know, because, you know, I, I have an amazing father and, and, and he is, he, he's, he's actually not here in this service, but he serves so much in our church and, and I have so many dad stories and my grandfather's not with us anymore, but uh, he was never short on stories. And, uh, but I know that not everyone shares that experience. So here's what I hope is that if Father's Day is a tough day for you, that you, you would just remember and encounter God as our perfect father. Like uh, we as humans, we are not perfect and we are going to miss the mark, but we do have a heavenly father who is perfect in all of his ways, who is faithful, who is kind, who is gracious. And what's, what's interesting, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, when we say the faithfulness of God. I think that means so much more to me today than it did 25 years ago. Because I think to understand the faithfulness of God, you need some time. And it takes time to prove faithfulness. And so as, as, I, as, I, grow, uh, as I grow older physically, as I grow in my relationship with God, those attributes and his character really become richer for me and, and more meaningful. And so I hope that you will, you will let, let our perfect father uh, show you how much he loves you and show you his faithfulness and his graciousness and his, his good stuff. And, and I, I have tons of dad stories. Last week, my dad and I went hunting. Um, we were on the men's camp out and uh, we went hunting together, except we were hunting flies. And uh, it, was, it was just fun. We were, you know, we're sitting around uh, and, and someone had brought, it looks like a tennis racket that's a fly swatter, but it's electrified. So, you know, we were Actually, we were kind of daring some of the younger guys to lick it, but uh, we got no takers on that. So we just sat there and we were hunting flies with it. So what we were doing is actually we were baiting flies. So we would put some food on the table and he would hold the racket there. So a fly would, he would fly all around it. And we're sitting there watching like, land on it, land on it. And finally one did and it fried it. And it was awesome. And we laughed. I mean, we laughed about that from 10, 15 minutes. It was awesome. But I got so many dad stories, and, and, and there was always something to learn. But what, I, what I've learned is, is so many times when we encounter a story, there's a deeper meaning. There's a bigger lesson in it. And that's the same thing as we move into this section in the Gospel of John, that we see these stories, and, and if, you, if, you, if you're reading through Scripture, it's really easy just to go, well, I've read this story. You know, I've read this story. I know this story. And, and, and we get that way around church a lot because if you've been in church for a long amount of time and you'll hear something taught, the tendency is to go, oh, well, I've heard this before. And we kind of, we, we don't, I don't know, some of us just mentally check out. Like, well, I've heard this before. And it's it's kind of like watching a rerun. But, but the scripture, the, the word of God is so different. It is living and breathing and active. And every time we approach the word of God, the Holy Spirit, who is the ultimate author, is present with us to reveal new things to us. And as we move into this section, we're studying through the gospel of John. And, and as we move into this section, it's easy to look at some of these stories and miss Jesus and miss what he's really doing in these stories. And so we're going to be in John chapter 6 this weekend. So if you got your Bible, open to John 6, or you can follow along on the screens with us. But this is Jesus feeding the 5,000. And, and, and this is one where, you know, we'll, we'll kind of, we kind of tend to gloss over, like, okay, so Jesus fed 5,000 people. 
And uh, so let's, move, let's keep going in Scripture. But I want to challenge us to slow down, and instead of reading Scripture as a checklist, let's get in to experience the character of our Father, the character of, of the God of the universe who created us in His image, who loves us so much that, that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die for our sins, that Jesus is God in the flesh and, and came to, so that we could have grace and we could, we could encounter and experience the fullness of the character of God. And when we experience God, then we can express those things of God. And, and, and so we look at uh, John chapter 6, and this, <clears throat> this scene also happens in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's called a synoptic Gospel. So it's in all four, and, and, and when you read them, you'll see some different things. And, and just the way, I, the way I explain that is, is it's, it's four different men. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're writing about the same account, but they're sharing their perspective. You know, because you can, I mean, we can see different things and it's the same thing. We can, we can experience some things and it's the same situation. So I'll be drawing from all of those. But remember the intent of John, the disciple John, for writing this gospel. The intent was found in John chapter 30, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by uh, believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I didn't write every, John's concern wasn't every little detail. John's concern was putting us into the situation so that we would see that Jesus is who he says he is. And that when we believe he is who he says he is, we have life in his name. And when we have life in his name, then what happens is that life begins to live out. So it changes how we even approach God when we, when we realize the level of that, of that belief. And so it starts out verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. They're, they're one and the same. And they're, they're called many names, but it says after this, and, and what you've got to understand is in the timeline of scripture, you, you tie this in timeline wise with, uh, with Mark chapter five, that Jesus, he had sent out the disciples. He had anointed them and sent them out and he sent them out and he says, uh, go out, proclaim the news of the kingdom. So preach the gospel, heal the sick and cast out the demons. And then they come back in this time frame. John the Baptist, who we've, we've talked a lot about through this study, John the Baptist was murdered. Um, he was martyred. And, and so Jesus has all this going on. And so it says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, the, the sign that precedes this in the Gospel of John was the healing of the man at the pool called Bethesda. And so that's, that's a sign. But when you go to Mark chapter 5, we see that Jesus heals, he heals a man with a demon. He heals a woman with the issue of blood. And he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So the people are seeing these things. So they start following Jesus. They're, they're pursuing this because he's healing their sick. He, he's performing these miracles. And, and so the, the crowd comes. So it says that um, the large crowd was following him because they saw the signs. Then we go on. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with the disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So Jesus has a lot of ministry that's happening. And in, in, in ministry... Uh, it equates to this. There's a lot of emotional labor, 
right? So when, we, when you minister to someone, you know you're, you're kind of pouring out. When, you, when, you, when you're discipling someone and you have an intense meeting and, and you're pouring out and pouring in, yes, God has to pour in for us to have something to give, but it's still tiring. It's exhausting. I mean, Sunday afternoons, I'm tired. I mean, there's a lot of pouring out. You know, there's a, there's a lot of seeing God do incredible things, but, but physically and emotionally, you're, you're kind of tired, right? If you're really engaging in with the messiness of humanity and really being a disciple, trying to make disciples, it's, it's, it can be exhausting. And Jesus, you've got to think he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he's going to rest. And Mark 6, 31 tells us that, that he was, he said, let's go away by ourselves. Let's go. Let's get some rest. Jesus had a good rhythm of disconnecting from his ministry and connecting with God. It was a rhythm called Sabbathing. You know, it wasn't just a legalistic day that the Pharisees had made it, but God had set a rhythm called the Sabbath, and he made the Sabbath so that we could disconnect, reconnect. And so Jesus, is, he's, he's like, let's go. Let's go get away by ourselves. Let's disconnect. And the, the Passover is at hand. John is the only one who mentions that this happens around the Passover, which I think is cool because, you know, the title gives it away, Jesus Feeds the 5,000. And I think it's kind of cool because the Passover is a, is a celebration of remembrance for the Jews of when God brought them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. That God said, I, I want my people free. I'm going to lead you to a promised land that I, that I will give to you. And while they're in that wilderness between Egypt and the promised land, and there was a lot of craziness that happened. It was 40 years in that wilderness. Should not have taken that long. But there was disobedience on the account of the people. And God said, okay, so this generation is not going to see the promised land. So he, 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 they wander in the desert. But what's amazing, we think we're wandering. They're just doing circles in the desert and zigzags. But God is leading them. God didn't abandon them in that moment. But even through all of that time in the desert, God provided the food for them. He was providing manna, and then when they complained that oh, bread, we're just tired of bread, I don't think I would ever get tired of bread. I mean, my blood type is salsa, my love language is gravy, and it takes carbs to work with both of those. I don't think I'll ever get, get tired of carbs. Somebody said, you should cut carbs. My idea of cutting carbs is a pizza cutter, right? So... I, I just, you know, so I would, but they complain. We just, we just get bread. That's all we get is bread. So then God provides quail. He provides meat. Now you're talking really good. Meat and bread? Come on now. I mean, what, do, it's Father's Day, and, and it's kind of like I want, I want biscuits. I want gravy, and I don't mean just thin gravy. I want gravy that will hold up. You know when you watch a chef show and they're making whipped cream, and they're like, you whip it until it has its own peaks. I want that kind of gravy. I want gravy that's thicker than axle grease, you know, and I want chunks. I don't want bits. I want chunks of sausage in it so that when I bring the biscuit across, I get, I get a heaping mound of this beautiful gravy with chunks of sausage that I can just satisfy myself with. Okay. Did you get that, honey? Okay. So that answers, what do you want for dinner? Ba-bam. Where was I? I got so lost in that, man. It was just like, man, I just felt the spirit just pouring on. Like, come on now. Come on. So you talk great. I mean, if I talk about gravy, revival's going to break out. I'm just telling you, because I got some thoughts going on in my mind about that. But, um, 
So I think it's, it is cool that, that the Feast of Passover is happening, and, and they're going to remember through the Passover meal, the Seder meal. Every piece of food on the table has a specific meaning for the Israelites, the Jews, not to forget about God. And Jesus is going to provide a meal for, it says 5,000, it's 5,000 men. It's a different gospel accounts would say that it was, it was the men. And then, you know, they say it could be upwards of 20,000 people. If you got pastors trying to count, there's like 80,000 people that Jesus fed. You know, we get around pastors, you get pastors around the table and they're like, well, you shouldn't lie. But they talk, we call it evangelistically speaking. You know, like, oh, there was, there was like 1,000 people there. You know, there was actually about 110. But, you know, I mean, you go for it, you know. I one pastor would say it this way. He goes, well, every person in a seat, they are a body, soul, and a spirit. So you count them three times. So you got three people. You got nine people. I was like, there you go, man. All right, then. So we don't know the exact number. We know it was 5,000 men that Jesus fed. Uh, and uh, he, he, this is a time of remembrance. But in, in, when he sees the crowd, see, Jesus, he's, he's got to be tired. And we know Jesus got tired. In John chapter 4, when he's, when he's coming through Samaria, he comes to the well. It says that he was tired. I mean, that's the thing. As Jesus, who is fully God, submitting himself to, to becoming flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, he gets tired. But he, Mark chapter 6 says this, that when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on him. And compassion is an interesting word. Compassion is an active word. Compassion doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't just look at a situation and go, man, I feel sorry for you. You know, compassion isn't what James says that is faith without action. Compassion doesn't just go, man, that's a hard situation. I, I'll pray for you. God bless you. You know, compassion says we see the situation, but then we are moved to act on the situation. So when Mark says that Jesus had compassion on him, he sees a crowd. What does he see? He explains it. They're like a sheep without shepherd. And he has compassion on them. So he begins to teach them. And as he's teaching them, then we get to the point of, of having some some food, but it says in verse five, it says, lifting up his eyes and then seeing that a large crowd coming toward him, toward him Jesus turns to Philip. And, and Philip's is, Philip is kind of his problem solver, right? He's kind of like, he wants to figure things out. And then so Jesus turns to Philip and he says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Notice something. Where are we to buy bread? He's bringing Philip. Okay. He's showing Philip, there's a problem in front of us. Oh, I'm sorry. There's an opportunity for our corporate folks, right? Because you don't go into your view like, you got a problem. No, you've got an opportunity here. And it's an opportunity for you to improve, right? So we've got this performance action plan to help you seize this opportunity. And if you don't seize this opportunity, we'll help you seize an opportunity outside, right? Dude, I spent enough time in the corporate world. I know the game. But Jesus, he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all these people to eat. Remember, 5,000 men. And if it's a man like me, especially if they've been walking all day following Jesus, they're hungry. And I mean, I, I, could, I could handle a loaf at that point. So he said this to Philip, verse 6 says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, that's where I see my dad. Because we grew up, we grew up on a farm, and we grew up having to figure things out, right? If something breaks, you figure it out. 
I mean, and I carried that into my, 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 my manhood. Like something breaks and I'm like, I'm gonna figure this out. And I get much better because I have YouTube now. But I'm gonna figure it out or I'm gonna make it worse for whoever I have to hire to fix it. I mean, my mechanic. So I would call him and go, this is what it's doing. And, and I would say on a scale of one to five, how hard is it? Big, oh, that's like a one, which, you know, it's more like a three for me, but, but it's like a one, but he'll, he'll talk me through it. And then he'll go, but if you screw it up, I'm going to charge you more. So he, but I, I, he would talk me through it. And see, my dad would do this. He would look at a problem and he would go, well, what do you think? And I already knew he knew the answer. So I would listen to him, well, you already know the answer, so just tell me what to do. So Jesus is asking Philip, where are we going to buy the bread? He's asking Philip this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. He already knew the outcome of the situation, but yet he's asking Philip because he's trying to bring him into the lesson, right? My dad would do that. He's like, well, what do you, what do you think we ought to do with this? And he'll let me work on the problem. What he's doing, he's not, he's not sitting back and getting a laugh out of watching me try to figure out. What he's trying to do is he's trying to teach me to engage in the problem. He's trying to teach me how to work the problem. And listen, we all got problems, and all of our problems, we got to work. And so I'm grateful for my father because I grew up not just, not just learning how to turn wrenches or learning how to work on things around the house or learning how to hang lights or learning how to rewire ceiling fans and learning how to clean plumbing and learning how to install these things. But, you know, it, it helps in my marriage because it saves me a lot of money from having to hire somebody. But all that I was gaining in this was wisdom. Because it's, it's fun because now I can... I can bring other people along and say, you know, hey, I'll help you work on your brakes. I'll help you work on your car. I want to teach you how to do it. And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to bring Philip in to see a different perspective on the problem. But Philip automatically goes to his solving skills. He says, he's like, Jesus, yo, 200 denarii, which would be like 200 days wages, Right? I mean, so do the math. I mean, you take your annual salary, you divide it by 2,080, that's a full-time hour, and then multiply that times eight, that's your daily wage, and then multiply that times 200. And he's like, we could spend that and still not have enough. Look what he says. We, everybody wouldn't even get a little bit. And you know, Jesus is thinking inside, he's like, he's, he's gonna, he's, I can't wait to see Philip's face. Because I, mean, I think Jesus... He's fully human, right? So he's got a sense of humor. I mean, we think, well, God, do you have a sense of humor? Oh, I, I know he has a sense of humor. And so Jesus, he's got to be going, fill up, fill up, fill up. Ah, just watch this. So he's, he said this. And then, and then one of his disciples, Andrew, is also a problem solver. He says, he says to, to Simon Peter's brother, he's Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. He says to him, hey, there's a boy here, us five barley loaves and two fish, but where are they for so many? Now I had to stop here and, and I actually laughed. So you got Philip trying to solve the problem with money. We don't have enough money to give everybody a bite. And what's Andrew going to, well, we could steal this kid's lunch. So <laughs> Philip said, no, no, we'll buy it. And Andrew's like, dude, we can take this kid's lunch. I mean, we're bigger than he is. John is the only gospel that mentions the little boy. Because the other gospels, Jesus, so, so in this exchange, Jesus tells the disciples, go figure out what we got. Knowing Jesus already knows what we got. So they go out and Andrew was the one who brings the little boy to Jesus. And he's like, hey, we got this kid. And I thought about this too. I mean, some of the stuff in scripture just strikes me as interesting when you really stop and think about it. Like this little boy 
It just says boy. We don't know how old he was. But he had five loaves of bread and two fish. I mean, was he a teenager? Because, dude, that's the only, I mean, because we were feeding our granddaughter last night. And, like, she would eat half a piece of pizza. She goes, all done. So, I mean, this, this had to be a growing boy. But five loaves and two fish. You brought that for yourself? But I think it's interesting because God gives us provision so that we can be a provision for other people. I mean, it didn't say they took the boy's lunch, but he hands it off. He puts it in the hands of, of Jesus, and, and, and then we, we start, start to see what happens. So verse 10 says, uh, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. The other gospels, uh, like Luke says they sat down in groups of 50 each, and Mark says 50 to 100. There's that evangelistically speaking again. But they sat down in groups of anywhere from 50 to 100, let's say. So I, and so Jesus begins to feed them, which, side note here, church, right? This is, we don't grow as much as we could grow sitting in a room like this or sitting in your living room or driving your car listening and and, and, and listening to this or sitting and watching me. Church is done best. Our growth is done best. Our discipling and our discipleship is done best in circles, small groups. I mean, can I get an amen, live group leaders? Because that's where it gets real. So Jesus has them sit down and then he begins to feed them. Verse 11 says, Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Now, some people will say, so let me, let me head this off at the past. Some will go, well, Jesus, it says that Jesus distributed. But the other gospels say that he gave them to the disciples and the disciples distributed. So is that a contradiction in scripture? No. A couple things you got to take note of here. Whose hands was it in when the multiplication happened? Right? It's Jesus. But then Jesus is handing it to the disciples. And John is, what he's doing, remember his intention for writing. I wrote these accounts so that you may believe who he is, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is highlighting the multiplier was not the disciples. The multiplier is Jesus, the one who took the five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 plus people was Jesus, but what he chose to do when you look at all the gospel accounts and bring the full, bring in the full scene, he chose to do that through the disciples. Why? Because he wants to use us. Well, why can't God just fix all the world's problems? He can. And the way he chooses to do that is when we're obedient as disciples to engage. There's a starving world around us but we've got to recognize, what are we putting into Jesus' hands that he can multiply, that he can do the, the supernatural with, that he puts back in our hands to give to the world? And it, it, it's, it, it all comes down to what we put in Jesus' hands. But here's another thing, gratitude. Jesus thanked God the Father for what he had in his hands. Philip, we don't have enough money to do all this, Jesus. That sounds, like, that sounds like some of our team members and staff meeting because I'm like, well, let's do this. We don't have the budget for that. You got to put it in Jesus' hands, man. None of my staff said amen. I was like, 
It'll be an interest business department meeting this week. (laughs) But we don't have enough money to fix this. And Andrew's like, look, we've got this little bit, but what is this for so many people? I mean, this is like a drop in the ocean. What's this going to do? The key is we have to be thankful for whatever we have in our hands to put that in Jesus' hands so that he can hand the multiplication back to us, not for us, but to distribute, to be faithful as disciples, to hand it out, to give to the world what the world is so hungry for. And so he chooses to use the disciples as a part of this. You know, the miracle was seen by two, there's two, two people who saw the miracles, the group of disciples and the little boy. Right, because the little boy was behind the scenes. He's like, he's like, they're like, hey, kid. <laughs> so, uh, so we don't have enough food. And the kid's like, well, that's your problem. <laughs> you know, it's called planning. But the little boy saw what Jesus did with what he gave. The disciples saw what Jesus did. Do you remember Jesus's first miracle was at the wedding? He told his mom, "Mom, it's, it's not time yet." And then she tells, "Do what he says." So he says, fill up, the, fill up the cisterns, the jars with water, and it became wine. It's what goes in his hands. And the disciples knew what was going on. The servants at that wedding knew what happened. The host didn't. The people didn't. The hosts are just like, oh, they found some more wine because they told me we were out. The people who are attending come to the host like, what kind of host are you, man? You serve the best stuff at the end. That's the power of God at work. And so they're feeding, they're handing them out. They know what's going on. The people are just like, hey, man, it's a buffet. They keep bringing food. It's like ponchos. They keep raising the flag, you know. You know more bread, more fish. Could you get some, do you have some like olive oil? Put some olive oil with some, some herbs in it. You ever notice that's the international symbol when you want a side of something at a restaurant? We, we do this or we make the, it's a ramekin, you know. Can I get a side of ranch? And you tilt it so that the waiter can see what's in your imaginary ramekin. Like, can I get a side of ranch with that right there? We all do it. You'll start noticing it now every time. You'll be looking around a restaurant. And the waiter's like. I got to keep you guys on track. So Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish... Look at this, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing could be lost. They went from, we don't have enough money, we got a little bit, but that ain't enough, to listen, they were satisfied. Every person was satisfied and there were leftovers. The leftovers struck me for a little while until kind of God just helped me understand this and I was listening to somebody talk about it. I was like, well, God, was that just bad planning? I mean, I think leftovers are always a good idea, you know, unless they're four days in the refrigerator and then they disappear. But I think leftovers are always a good idea. But what God, was this just poor planning on your part that you just like, Jesus, did you just get so excited about multiplying? Like, oh, well, I may just made too much. No, no, I think this is another lesson. Because Philip and Andrew and the disciples like, what is this? We don't have enough. What is this for, this little bit for so many? And Jesus is like, watch this. I think the leftovers would show that God isn't just a God of enough, but he's a God of abundance. 
But I think we also have to come to this declaration of faith that, God, you are enough. So often we're like, God, I want the abundance. If we really search our heart, why do we want the abundance? What is the abundance for? Do we want it so we have an abundance? And people see our abundance and go, well, you have an abundance. Or we've been faithful with what's in our hands and giving thanks for it. And we put that in the hands of Jesus. He multiplies it. And that's enough. But then when he multiplies it, puts it back in our hands, it's not for us to hold on to. It's for us to, ah. And the people we're serving, the people we're sharing the gospel with, the community we're making an impact in, they just see a people. They just see a church. They just see people who follow Jesus serving and trying to make an impact in our world. But listen, we know because we know it's Jesus who's multiplying that we can give out. That he is a God of abundance. They take up 12 baskets of fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten them. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The people are like, what's going on? Hey, there's, there's not enough food. Oh, Jesus is feeding us? Because, you know, church and food, this is where it started, right? There's a potluck after church? Yeah. He's feeding us? The people who, who figure out what's going on, well, what happens is they come like, this is the one. Notice that it says the prophet, capital P, the prophet. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has come into the world. This is the one who is sent to save us. This is Messiah. And it says that they were, they were uh, ready to just crown him as king. Verse 15 says, Jesus was perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He's like, okay, now I'm out. I, I taught you, man, I tried to shepherd you, I fed you, and now, now you're wanting me to take on a role that I'm not here to take on. They wanted an earthly king. See, see we, we, we reduced the, the, the Messiah down to our political Messiah, right? Because they wanted him to be king because they're under the control of Rome at this point. Like, oh, when Messiah comes, he's going to take care of Rome. Well, Jesus took down Rome, but he also took down the kingdom of darkness. He took down sin, death, hell, the grave, Jesus had his sights on so much bigger than being our earthly king. Why would he want to be an earthly king when he is king of kings? He's like, look, I've got a throne, and you can't build a throne that'll match my throne. Where is he now? He is seated on his throne. He's at the right end of the Father, seated in glory. So Jesus, he, he steps away. And, and I think this is an amazing story, right? But there's also a lesson in this. Like when we see Jesus, when we really see Jesus in this story and what he's doing, I think I think. We see Jesus because Jesus sees the opportunity, right? Or we can call it a problem, right? All of us have opportunities in our life. Some of them are really big right now. I mean, I read the prayer request. Every prayer request that you, that you send in online through the QR code or you write on a, a connect card and you drop in the giving stations or when you come to the altar for, for prayer time, our prayer team, they write down your prayer request on the card. It goes in every Tuesday. Our staff gathers those up and we pray over every request. We pray over every one of those by name. I see those requests. We're praying for those requests. I know you got some big opportunities in front of you. Some of y'all don't wanna share what your opportunity is but you're carrying it, and it's a problem that's got to be worked. Some of you, listen, sometimes the problems are good problems, right? Like, we can face good problems. As a church, there are times we face really good problems, like 
How do we get more people in? We're full. How do we do this? We keep adding services. And you're like, these are good. And I have, I have friends and mentors like, well, those are good problems. They're still problems. If they don't have a solution, they become bad problems. So we always have challenges in front of us. And Jesus sees that potential. I mean, he, Jesus had compassion and he saw the real need. The real need wasn't food. The real need is he looks at a people and they're like a sheep without a shepherd. They need direction. They need a connection with the God who created them in his image and loves them and loves them unconditionally and abundantly and wants to free them out of that sin that we're born into. So Jesus sees an opportunity here, even as tired as he was, to give of himself. He wasn't just giving bread and fish. He was giving of himself. That's the ultimate thing that we can see to give. So Jesus sees an opportunity to open the eyes of the blind. Well, were there blind people? No, spiritually blind. Because to walk away from that teaching and that encounter going, that's the one, he's the Messiah. That's what Jesus saw the biggest opportunity for. And then Jesus, he knows the potential, right? He, he tests Philip and he knows what he's already gonna do when he asks Philip, well, where are we gonna buy bread? Well, Philip goes into problem solving mode and Jesus is like, I already know what the solution's gonna be. I just, I just need you. I need you, Philip, to recognize the potential. So maybe, because Philip, listen, when we face problems, we automatically go into what we know, right? We automatically go into how much is it gonna cost? How are we gonna go about doing this? But, but if Philip would have really thought, well, Jesus... You did the wine thing. We've seen you open the eyes of the blind. We've seen you raise the dead. We've seen you cast out the demons. And you know what? Jesus, we're at Passover, and this is the time where you, as God, you provided manna for your children. So, hey, how about some of that? Because Philip goes into where can he provide, and Jesus is like, I need you to see how I can provide. What Jesus was trying to lead Philip, Philip to is, I need you to see the potential. I need you to see a God-sized outcome to this. Because here's the thing. Philip and Andrew saw, saw an issue where they lacked resources. We don't have enough money. We got just a little bit, but that's like, that's like nothing. But, but let me ask you this. What do you see with your, with your opportunity? What do you see in front of you? And what would it look like if you were to put that in the hands of Jesus? Because in the hands of Jesus, listen, he can do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can. When we go into a problem, opportunity, issue, whatever, when we go into it, we only see the issue, right? But we we have a God who stands outside of time and he can see the other side. Wouldn't it be better to, to like press into him who's already seen the other side? I mean, if we really believe, we, we love the coffee cup verse, right? You know, and he'll turn all things, he'll work all things together for good for those who love him. And we stop there. So we hit our issue and like, God, I need you to turn this for good. I need you to turn this for good. But he says, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Sometimes his purpose is for us to walk through the very issue. 
so that the good that we realize that comes from him happens in what we learn while walking through our opportunity. And then we start to realize his potential in our problems. Heather and I were talking the other day and, and we were talking about something and I go, I, and I use the line from a movie. And, and if, you, if you get this line, I'll give you free ice cream. <laughs> but it's a guy that looks at another guy and goes, we got a problem. And this is the guy, this is what the guy's responding. You see a problem, I see potential. What does the potential of him with our problem in his hands come out to be? It's always going to be more than we could ask or imagine because he is, he is he's big enough. Do you believe he's enough? And then do you believe he can do that? When he gave thanks, and, and, and the key is when we put it into his hands, let him show us. Remember Ephesians 3, 20, right? Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than all we can ask or think. Some say ask or imagine. Like, think about this. He can do more than we can daydream about. We don't even have the context to dream, imagine, or daydream or think about his solution sometimes. You ever been through a problem like that? You look back and go, man, that had to be the hand of God because I didn't come up with any of that. He's the God of enough. He's the God of abundance. And instead of complaining about what we don't have, how about we start giving him thanks for what we do? That when we come to an issue and Jesus is with us, he never leaves us or forsakes us. And he he looks at us in that moment. He goes, well, what are we going to do? And I love that he says, where are we? Because he includes, he said, I'm in the boat with you, man. What are we going to do? We've got this problem. What are we going to do? And I think, our first response needs to be, well, I'm going to press into you because you already know what's going to happen. I'm going to trust you. I'm not enough. I don't have enough, but you do. And this isn't a message about going, well, well, God will give me more money when I put that. No, 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 no. Sometimes you ain't going to get more money. Sometimes what you get is wisdom because he knows exactly what we need. Well, God, you know I need a new job. No, maybe he needs to teach you how to be content in that because there's somebody at that job that as he multiplies that contentment and puts it in your hands, then you can serve them and you can feed them the gospel. Just maybe, just maybe I'm submitting that. So I guess the key is when we put it in his hands and he puts it back in here, we gotta be faithful. We have to be obedient. The disciples serve. So it's like, God, here's what's in my hands. I'll put it in yours. And then he says, here, okay, show me where to be obedient with this. And he will absolutely open that. But we gotta be willing to get involved with this plan. So Father, God, we, we, we have things in front of us. And I'm asking you to give us faith to see you. Faith to see that your potential is limitless. Matter of fact, it's not even your potential, it's your ability. So give us faith, give us courage to put what we have in your hands. Thank you that your hands are more than capable. We trust you with what we have. We trust you to give direction in the process. Teach us as you work and use us to give what you multiply. The way we just finish this prayer, God, is to you. This is now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think.
according to the power at work within us, that you, the Holy Spirit at work within us, to you be the glory in Christ and in the church through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I love you guys.